0: Founding support for The Reading Life comes from Octavia Books. Additional support comes from the Hellas Foundation and the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Hello and welcome to The Reading Life, your weekly look at the Louisiana literary scene. I'm Susan Larson. This week we take a look back at the best books of 2023. closing days of the year now, and it's time for a look back at the books that kept us reading. Reading and Riveted in 2023. Two Louisiana authors topped the New York Times bestseller list. Britney Spears claimed her independence with The Woman in Me, while Walter Isaacson stayed on the track of innovation with his biography of Elon Musk. Now, when you were considering your next subject, what drew you to him? Was there anything that seemed to caution you off as well as attract you?
1: Well, what drew me to him was he has such an impact on our society today. I think the three people of our day and generation who will go down in history are Steve Jobs for bringing us into the era of friendly personal computers and smartphones. Mm-hmm. Jennifer Doudna for bringing us into an era in which we can edit our own DNA and maybe even design our own children. though that's frightening. And then thirdly, Elon Musk, who's bringing us into the era of electric vehicles and renewed space travel. When I started, I didn't know he was going to buy Twitter, and that certainly made him more controversial. But it also made for a richer, more interesting story about a guy who has light and dark strands woven together.
0: When you signed up for this, of course, as you say, you had no idea these two years would be these two years. So you were were witness to a lot of intense emotional experience in his life as well. And he let you in. I signed
1: up for it, uh, he had just become the richest person on Earth. He had become Time's Person of the Year. He had taken Tesla from the brink of bankruptcy to being more valuable than the next nine car companies combined. And he was able to get astronauts into orbit from the U.S., which Mm -hmm. even NASA couldn't do. And I said, boy, you must be... uh, you know, savoring some success. And he said, no, I always like to put my chips back on the table. I always like the drama. And he told me he was secretly, he was buying up shares of Twitter. And I remember that day when he went off to Hawaii, uh, to stay at Larry Ellison's house and then to Vancouver to be with his girlfriend, Grimes. And he stayed up three or four nights in a row and finally decided to make an offer for Twitter. So I've seen the ups and the downs, but it's, uh, I hope to present it in a very fast-paced storytelling way Mm -hmm. that people can say, okay, this guy's crazy, but I'm interested in this ride.
0: In Louisiana history, the late great Alfred Lemon of the historic New Orleans collection gave us Spanish New Orleans in the Caribbean. John Lawrence of the Historic New Orleans Collection traced an artistic history in Louisiana Lens, the history of photography in Louisiana. Richard Campanella studied the perplexing problem of draining New Orleans, the 300-year quest to dewater the Crescent City. You really get at the truth behind so many, you know, preconceived notions that we all hold dear, like the whole idea of being below sea level. How did that happen?
2: Humans did humans it accidentally. Did it. <laughs> Nature cannot do that on a Delta A plane. Any spot that would have bottomed out like that would have filled with water, and we'd call it a bay, a pond, a lake, uh, a swamp. But only humans could do this here. We did and so, d- and, uh, you did it to
0: ourselves.
2: And I wanted to, you know, you, one has to judge people in the era and their understanding sure. uh, of, of their time. And it was very important to me to try to tease out Did they know this was going to happen, that by draining the back swamp and developing it, they were going to sink into these dangerous, flood-prone bowls? Uh, And the short answer is yes. I found a number of inferences and very clear statements that that this cause and effect would happen. What they did not do, however, was, as we might say today, they did not problematize it. They did not understand Mm -hmm. that this was something more than just a quirk. Uh, it would develop into an enormous problem.
0: And the other thing you write so well about is how our cemeteries got to be the way they are as well. Right. Uh, I
2: I describe our above-ground cemeteries as having three tiers of motivations— the third. Now, p- people might be surprised in a book about drainage that I'm putting hydrology as reason number three. But so um, much
3: is this yeah, is yeah, all woven that, together.
2: That, um, the earliest cemetery, the French cemetery on Burgundy and St. Peter, was actually below ground. It was on the natural levee, and the way you did it, which is, again, ditching gravity. By digging a ditch around the square and taking that spoil and mounting it up on top of the square, plus you're on higher ground, you create enough mm-hmm. um, soil there that you could bury underground. Uh, After the fires, the Spanish rethought the use of urban land. Why are we reserving this whole block for the dead when the, we could put them outside the city wall and put living people there. And so in doing so, density became an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, they, remember, if you bury someone, that space is permanently dedicated to one body. You could squeeze them in, but you can't go on top, right? <laughs> By building up, it's basically multifamily housing. Right. Density. The density problem is solved. It was in the Spanish custom. That's reason number two. Density was number one. And the third motivation uh, was that now you don't have to muck around digging the ditch uh, right. that that you could do and get away with it, and so for those reasons it caught on and we do it to this day.
0: One of the most fascinating biographies of the year was Kim Wickens' Lexington, The Extraordinary Life and Turbulent Times of America's Legendary Racehorse. This book illuminated New Orleans' glory days as a 19th century sporting town.
4: The city is almost in, in the book a character.
0: Absolutely.
4: In, in and of itself, because there was so much about New Orleans that was just so fascinating to me. It was so vibrant and so colorful that how could you not have fun? writing about new orleans in that era today we look at maybe kentucky california new york florida as the places where really horse racing you know that that's where we think of horse racing occurring but back in the 1830s starting about in the 1830s a little before new orleans was really the hotbed of horse racing there was so much that the city had to offer in terms of the wealth of the city being a port of course, the plantations and and so forth surrounding the city. It was really a mecca of wealth. And it could attract and did attract a large population in terms of sport. And, you know, there were various bullfighting was occurring in New Orleans. There were other sports, the foot races and so forth that people would, would have, were basically starting in New Orleans. Boxing was mm-hmm. another sport that was making its way onto the scene, but really horse racing became the spectator sport for New Orleans, and not just New Orleans, but for the country at large. But really, it was the wealth that New Orleans was able to provide that created interest and the ability to support three separate race courses within the city. I mean, if you can imagine three separate, you know, national football teams, for example, existing in New Orleans, you know, I mean, that would just be insane that a city could support that much interest in one sport. But it did.
0: In fiction, James Lee Burke, prolific as ever, offered a Holland family novel, Every Cloak Rolled in Blood, and Flags on the Bayou, a work of historical fiction. Richard Ford returned to his longtime character Frank Bascom for a final Valentine's Day journey called "Be Mine." So, what is it like for you? I mean, you end in in fr- with Frank turning towards something with expectation and and curiosity, and it's always a kind of grace note where you leave your readers poised. What is it? What is it like for you to get to that moment after all these years with this man? All this time, surveying this landscape, how I mean, how do you feel? How do you know
5: that it's the end? Yeah, that I'm not going to write any more of these books. Um, it, 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 it's it's nothing that's endemic to the books themselves. If if I was 69 instead of 79, I could probably write another one. Yeah, but because I am 79 and. Uh, um, the, some of the practicalities of of the final editing processes was pretty 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 dismaying to me. Things I didn't keep up with as well. As, I had to try a lot harder to keep up with things as much as uh, as much as I needed to. Um, I would, you know, I just didn't feel like I wanted to do this again because I was afraid, and I think afraid is not too strong a word, that I might not do it as well. Um, and so I, I thought then then that says to me, then then don't do this again. Don't 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 embark on a two and a half year project which uh-huh. which has another year added to it in editing. Um, if you don't think that you can give it all that you need to give it, because in this instance in writing Be Mine, I I, I gave it I, I gave it all it needed. I gave it my all, and um, I want my all to be good enough. You mm-hmm. know, and if you're not giving your best. To your readership, then why are you doing that? I mean, I I know lots of people, who are who are lifelong writers such as I am, uh, who I think um, um, just write another book because they're there. Oh yeah. And, and and I'm not complaining because sometimes they write those books and they're great books. hmm But if I did that, just write a book because I was there, I don't know if it would be a great book. I don't know if it'd be a masterpiece for me. Uh, and I and since that's my goal. I get to the end of this book, and I think to myself, "Well, I don't think I can do that again." You have to pay attention.
0: It's such a perfect moment.
5: At, at the end of the book. Yeah. It's it's a good ending. This is this is it's a, it's probably I think the best ending of a novel I ever wrote. Uh,
0: How did you feel when you wrote that sentence?
5: Um, when well, I wrote it, about sixty times. So. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> uh I I I thought spot on. Mm-hmm. Spot on is what I thought. This is this is the right way to end this you know 40 years of writing books.
0: And finally, one of the very best books of 2023 is Let Us Descend, the new novel from Jessamyn Ward, who traces the life of Annas, a young woman sold into slavery in Louisiana. Two fascinating novels were debuts. Wendy Chin Tanner's King of the Armadillos drew on her father's experience as a patient at the leprosarium at Carville, Louisiana, where he lived from 1954 to 1963.
6: Much like my main character, Victor, when my father was a teenager, um, he was diagnosed with Hansen's disease, and he was sent to Carville, where he stayed for nine years until he was 25 years old. So when I was growing up, I heard plenty about Carville, even though it was a secret that I knew I couldn't talk about outside of our home, but within our home it was completely open my dad was a great storyteller he still is a great storyteller and his very best stories were set at carville so for me as a little girl i thought of carville as this amazing mythical place almost like narnia or oz (laughs) and it was it was a great source of imagination for me i knew that my dad was sick and that he received treatment there but I also knew that he finished high school there, and he was given music lessons, voice, piano, composition, and he excelled at that. And I also knew that it was an incredibly beautiful place, which it still is, mm-hmm. It's on the grounds of an old sugar plantation and um, has all the amenities of a small town, really.
0: So tell us about your first visit to the place in 2016 with, it, with your father. How did it compare to what you'd imagined? And, and describe it for our listeners a bit, if you would.
6: Well, that was an amazing trip, because after leaving in 1963, my dad didn't go back until that trip with me. So um, I think for him, it was kind of a triumphant homecoming, in a sense. He had spent 53 years away, Mm. and when he arrived as a young man, as a teenager, he was alone. But when he arrived this time, he was not only with me, but also with my mom and my husband and my two little girls. So I think for him, it felt in some way like a demonstration of a life well-lived after Carval. When we were there, we kind of retraced his footsteps from from the very start, because we were staying in the infirmary, which has been converted into military conference housing. So when my dad arrived as a 16-year-old, his, the first place he, he went was also the infirmary. So that was kind of amazing to just literally follow his footsteps. And that kicked off a process of... Uh, Kind of time traveling almost, Mm -hmm. because in addition to researching in the archives, my dad and I, of course, walked the grounds and he showed me everything. He showed me his old dorm, he showed me the famous or infamous hole in the fence where patients would sneak in and out, and he showed me the lake, and most movingly perhaps, he also showed me the church where he got to play the first piano he ever touched, Ah. the piano that he learned on. He played the Moonlight Sedona, and it was magical.
0: For her first novel, Scorched Grace, Margot Duahy created Sister Holiday, a queer former punk rocker of a nun, out to solve the mystery behind a serial arsonist targeting the community of the Sisters of Divine Blood. I
7: had the tremendous fortune of living in New Orleans for two years, between 2008 and 2010, and I worked with a lot of local youth doing some writing and educational programs and a writing studio at the Studio of Colton, on Colton, and I just fell in love with New Orleans, as <laughs> so many people do, and I knew I wanted to set a mystery series in the glorious city so that I could continue to study it, live with it, dream about it, think about it, and include a lot of my curiosities, passions, intrigue into the book itself. And I did a lot of research about Catholicism in New Orleans. I often passed by a couple of of convents, one of them being abandoned, the former Ursuline convent in the quarter. And I was amazed by the incredible tradition of both nuns in New Orleans, convents in New Orleans, as well as the mysticism element, and of course, so many religious identities in this fabulous city. So it just felt appropriate to set a twist on noir with with hard-boiled signatures in New Orleans. It felt very natural to me. In part of a lineage that I'm proud to be of. And yes, I, I did a lot of research as well about just the spiritual sleuth. If anyone's read the Father Brown mysteries or mm-hmm. watched or read Grant Chester, uh, Sidney, Reverend Sidney Chambers, there is certainly a tradition of spiritual sleuth and investigators. But again, I want to make this hard boiled really flip the script so there's really nothing cozy about no (laughs) (laughs) not at all and I think one glimpse at the cover gives that away but I was also really intrigued by camp and high camp signatures and we'll be certainly getting a lot of that at the Saints and Sinners Festival and Tennessee Williams Literary Festival looking at how we how camp and noir can coexist. And so I was looking at a variety of different angles on the traditions that I love so I could bring a fresh take to it and keep readers really glued to the pages and invested in these characters.
0: It was a banner year for poetry with award winner Christine Kwan making her debut with The Ribbon the Most Perfect Blue. Gina Ferrara tracked Missing Women in a Miss, and Rodney Jones returned to his native state for inspiration in Alabama. Clint Smith, who had a bestseller with How the Word is Passed, a reckoning with the history of slavery across America, returned to poetry with Above Ground. Here he is reading Ars Poetica.
8: Ars Poetica. Before I took you into bed, you asked me what poets write poems about. I tell you, a poem can be about Anything. You look around your bedroom, eyes darting back and forth. Can a poem be about a lamp? Of course. Can a poem be about a door? Definitely. Can a poem be about Pluto? Many are. So everything is a poem? Everything. How can everything be a poem? Well, poems are in everything. Poems are in everything? Yep. Poems are in that cup? Uh-huh. Poems are in my shoe? Indeed. Poems are inside of me? They are. You lift your pajama shirt to examine what lies beneath it, fingers combing for evidence of the language I told you that was there, searching for something to tell you that you are what you have all been to me.
0: Charisma Price made a stunning debut with her collection, I Am Always So Serious. She's a New Orleans native.
9: I feel like growing up in New Orleans, it's a very unique privilege. You you really get to witness a lot of things. I feel like my growth as a writer, writing about New Orleans is interesting. I think mostly and particularly about my family, more so the city itself. Although it was really important for me to have New Orleans almost as a character or as a speaker within the collection. Mm-hmm. But Within New Orleans, New Orleans is particularly how I write about blackness in relationship to New Orleans in the South and how New Orleans in particular we're a little bit over our tricentennial year. In New Orleans is Colonized history, not to erase the indigenous history, but in the colonized history of it, it's been predominantly black for those 300 years because of the slave trade. And I feel like there's so many wonderful and beautiful stories by everyone here, but in particularly the black people that live here, many of whom you probably wouldn't, people don't like say, hey, like who are you? What's your story? I feel like if you talk to someone on the street, we have the most like wonderful and interesting lives. I feel like growing mm-hmm. up in New Orleans, whether it's writing, whether it's music, whether it's art i feel very encouraged to express myself in some form of creativity mm-hmm. so with new orleans i feel like a lot of people especially not from here they think of like the like tourists no offense to the tourists but you know they think of like oh the french quarter beignets crawfish which is all very good but i feel like once you leave that little square of the french quarter that's where the real new orleans is where you have the everyday people just trying to survive and i feel like a big part of the book for me is trying to emphasize not just survival but living if that makes sense like there is this sense Mm -hmm. of like trying to survive in the place that you call home, whether that is due to socioeconomic, political, whether it's especially post-Katrina. But I I feel like I, as a New Orleanian, we know how to survive, and I really wanted to get that essence into the book. T.R.
0: Johnson celebrated the idea of literary community in New Orleans, a writer's city. State Poet Laureate Mona Lisa Soloy celebrated Black Creole Chronicles. Here she is reading Activism Knows No Age.
3: This I wrote in the fashion of a litany, mm-hmm. kind of like a prayer. I I just had to say it. There was so much going on. And this is what I came up with. Activism knows no age. I stand for those forgotten. I stand for those jailed for frivolous accusations those sealed into life sentences for lightweight and often not well-proving offenses. I stand for those dismissed by color, caste, lifestyle. I stand for youth without parents. I stand for girls not to be molested. I stand for elders trying to live well. I stand for schools without current textbooks, technology, or well-trained educators. I stand for neighborhoods to remain safe. I stand for schools to remain safe for kids, teachers, staff, free from guns. I stand for stutterers, students with learning challenges, misunderstood by schools and anyone who thinks themselves better. I stand for honest, hardworking folks bullied by unfair people and work practices. I stand for women to get equal pay. You heard that? I stand for ex-prisoners for the right to vote, yes, indeed. I stand for an America for all of its people. Amen. I stand for neighborhood schools. I stand for Americans to learn the truth about its history. I stand for America to tell the truth about its history. You heard me. I stand for justice. I stand for truth. I stand for peace. Stand with me.
0: We came together for festivals, watched Peggy Scott Labord's new documentary, Literary New Orleans, celebrated Alison Pellegrin's selection as the new state poet laureate, and read Maurice Carlos Ruffin's The Ones Who Don't Say They Love You, which was the one book won New Orleans selection this year. And then we applauded when the Louisiana Writer Award this year went to Maurice at the Louisiana Book Festival. Watch for his new book, American Daughters in February. And here comes 2024 with promising new books all along the way. Here's hoping you have plenty of time to read. Happy New Year. Support for The Reading Life comes from Octavia Books, with major support from Rouse's Markets. Additional support comes from the Hellas Foundation, the Jefferson Parish Public Library, and the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in The Reading Life do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The theme song for The Reading Life is by Matt Perrine and Sunflower City. The Reading Life is produced by George Meyer and is a production of WWNO. You can listen to us anytime or subscribe to our podcast at WWNO.org. And you can email us at The Reading Life at WWNO.org.